Black adults in the U.S. are more likely than white adults to report emotional distress. Black adults living in poverty are twice as likely to report serious distress. Approximately 34% of Hispanic adults with mental illness receive treatment each year compared to the U.S. average of 45%. For the Hispanic community, language barriers can make communicating with providers difficult. 15% of Hispanic people in the U.S. live in poverty compared to 7.3% of non-Hispanic whites. Individuals who live in poverty have a higher risk of mental illness, and individuals with mental illness have a higher risk of living in poverty. Other barriers include the lack of cultural competence, legal status, and stigma. Today on the podcast, we're talking about Black mental health as part of our Black Love series. Our guest today will be behavioral health therapist and licensed clinical social worker, David Strother. Soldiers, this episode is specifically about mental health and trauma. And because we're talking about mental health and trauma, some of the information could be triggering to some listeners. Also, some of the examples given may be graphic and not necessarily appropriate for young listeners. Greetings and what's good, everybody. Welcome to the Christian Soldier Podcast, a social justice, faith-minded podcast featuring three friends from across the diaspora exploring life at the intersection of race, ethnicity, gender, culture, politics, and basically living while black. I'm Abdullah Muhammad. I'm Andres Amador. And I'm Justina Kinney. And we are just three POC in the cornfield, living life, loving Jesus, and fighting the good fight in these rough and tumble podcast streets. All right. Welcome back to the show, everyone. Um, In a previous episode, I mentioned and I talked about my depression. In this episode, I wanted to talk a little bit more about that. Uh, As I've mentioned, I'm not a health professional and I have no training in the matter. What I will talk about is my experience and what what, uh, worked for me. So, But please, if you or anyone you know is going through a mental health issue, please, please contact a professional. What I want to mention is that um, I'll admit that I didn't stick out talking with someone professionally about what I was going through. And that was my mistake. Um, One of the reasons was financial. Uh, There was an enormous financial stress in our home. And no pun intended here. I I just couldn't think straight. Um, Although the person I was working with was more more willing to accommodate. I use my financial situation as an excuse, really. So please don't make my mistake and please, please, please talk to someone. If you need to talk to several someones before finding the right fit, please, please, please do so. That's me. So listeners today, um, this, this will be, I think this will be a, a very much needed discussion. So for that, we brought in some help. We brought in a heavy hitter. So I want to introduce David Strother to the podcast as Andres did. So David Strother is a licensed, uh, specialized clinical social worker or LCSW. He's a licensed clinical social worker. And uh, David is a United States Marine Corps veteran uh, turned firefighter turned psychotherapist. So David served our country honorably in Afghanistan during Operation Enduring Freedom and received several commendations. And 
He also served as a firefighter for six years. He's been working in the mental and behavioral health field for nearly 20 years. So David specializes in the treatment of trauma and stress-related disorders and works with military personnel, veterans, and first responders, as well as those who haven't served but have experienced significant trauma. David was the director of two successful inpatient programs for major hospital systems in Kansas City, Missouri, and has provided direct service to over a thousand people in the last decade. And so just in addition to David's many professional accomplishments, I also have the personal honor of calling him my brother. So David is married to one of my sisters and they have four amazing children. So soldiers, please welcome to the podcast, David Strother. Thank you guys. That's a, uh, I couldn't have wrote a better <laughs> introduction for myself. <laughs> so I was like, that guy really knows me. Uh, thank you guys for having me on the pod today. Um, hope I'm able to give your listeners and you guys some clarity and some peace with a lot of these difficult issues. Absolutely, David. Thank you once again for being here. I'm just going to start us off with some quick questions. So first of all, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? You know, like if there's anything that Abdul missed, so tell us a little bit more about yourself, the clients that you serve, you know, like what are the demographics? What are some of the predominant issues that you see in the clients that you serve? And then lastly, what drew you to this line of work? Because obviously it is probably not an easy job. So we're just curious, like what drew you to this profession? Um, so I'll, I'll take it. I'll take it in order. I guess, you know, Abdul's known me for a very long time, you know, I met his sister when I was 19 years old. Oh. Uh, I actually it came right out of boot camp and uh, I was sitting in the uh, recruiter's office. I had missed so many different uh, opportunities to go out and recruit because I was uh, <laughs> I was a different type of Marine back then. And uh, <laughs> my, my recruiter kind of put the screws to me and said, hey, you need to do something. You've been home for a month. You got to go up to one of these schools or something. And he said, um, uh, we got two schools for you to go to. And he was like, you can go to Central or you can go to Southeast. And I didn't want to go to either one of them. And I was you know, 19 at the time. He said, well, there was a pretty cute girl who came in here yesterday who was asking about going into the Marine Corps. <laughs> And uh, I said, what school is she at? <laughs> no way. She said Southeast. No. <laughs> so <laughs> I met my future wife because he told me there was a cute girl who would ask about the military. I went up there and uh, we're there during lunch. And I mean, I know it sounds cliche, but I knew exactly who she was and who she was going to be in my life, even back then. Like I kind of figured it out real quick. And uh, by, I told her after we had talked for a little bit, I was leaving actually in a couple of days. I said, before I leave to go back to California and continue training, you'll be my girlfriend. And after wow. you're my girlfriend, you'll be my wife, you know? And if you know my wife, Sabira, that like <laughs> she wasn't used to that type of talk. She was. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> 21 years later through stress, trial, love, forgiveness, everything else, we're still rocking just as hard as we always been. I, I tell people a lot of times that I am a very reluctant therapist. Uh, I didn't get into therapy because I thought that I was particularly insightful. I got into therapy because I know pain. 
I know pain from a personal perspective, from growing up, how I grew up. Um, I like to tell my patients, some of us are children of chaos, right? We're, we're raised in chaos and we learn to adapt to chaos. But what really starts to kick our butts is peace, stillness. We got a lot of survival skills, but we can't handle the simple stuff. You know, my oldest is 11 and he still teaches me things about life that at 40, I'm like, oh, yeah, you could do it that way because I'm a child of chaos. So I think that always you got to scratch or fight or there always has to be something. I didn't know that there was an ease to life. So I became a therapist mm. because once I learned those skills, I have always had, I, I guess you would classify it now and maybe pop psychology terms. They call it a, a hero complex. Not a true diagnosis, but it's more about a personality trait. Um, you know, Dula tell you I am one of the biggest comic book guys in the world. I'm, I'm a hero guy, right? My wife let me name my children mm. after heroes. I couldn't use code names. She wouldn't, or you'd be running around with a bunch of little Wolverines around here. Right? <laughs> <laughs> she wouldn't let me do that, but she did let me pick the real names. And that's why uh, my oldest is Xavier Logan. And my, 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 my second son is, his name is Eric Remington, which is Magneto and Gambit. And uh, Spider-Man is my favorite character in the world. So my daughter, I couldn't name her Peter. So my wife let her be called Parker. So that's how serious I, I am. I never put that together. I yeah. cannot Y'all, this believe is, that. He's not yeah. exaggerating. This is this is real talk yeah. right here. Yeah. Oh if I had my way, it'd be a little uh, Professor X and Wolverine together. Right around. My wife's like, I would not let you do it. But I've always, <laughs> I've always been called to protect and nurture. And that goes back to being a child of chaos. You know, I grew up in a very uh, dysfunctional household where my mom, I knew she loved me, but she was a single parent with many kids and she made a lot of uh, decisions that affected me. One of those was, you know, being in some pretty abusive relationships. So even as a young kid, I felt the need to, you know, and this is something that therapy is about. When we get later in the talk, we'll talk about that. Therapy only has one major goal, to transform pain into power. That's all you're supposed to do with it. So what I learned with my pain was I didn't like to see people hurt. So I became someone that protected someone. So when people look at me and they're like, oh, you've been a Marine and a firefighter and a therapist. Well, that's kind of what God said I was going to do anyway. How I chose to do it is my decision. That's the free will part. But I didn't have any any choice in being a protector and loving and doing those things. So as I grew up, I found many different paths. You know, I found many different ways to do things, but kind of coming into therapy was a back-ended thing. My my uncle, he'd been a therapist most of my life, Gerald Payne, a very prominent therapist in our city. He had been working with uh youth. He's a child, child therapist. He deals with a lot of adults, but he was, you know, he was a foster kid himself and he's really in that system. So I'd watched him do it, but I really never had the thought of I want to do that because, like I said. Um, like most of our people, I didn't have a true grasp of what therapy was. When I got out the Marine Corps, um, I had been deployed, um, had seen some things that had kind of changed my perspective on life, had been through a lot of different experiences, lived in different countries, you know, saw what, what culture looked like outside of this. I mean, to be quite honest, the first time in my life that I wasn't Black, I was outside of my country. That was the first time I was American. Everything else, mm. I've been black my entire life. So to be in other countries and that be the dominant trait, right? You're an American. 
it was like it was different. So those things kind of shaped me a bit. And uh, when I got out, I went through a lot of different trials. Uh, I got out the Marine Corps and um, I got cancer. I had a Hodgkin's lymphoma, uh, stage three, almost terminal cancer. And uh, me and my wife, we went through uh, almost seven months of intense chemotherapy to kind of get there. You know, that story in itself is ridiculous. And just, you know, because at the time, you know, I was super young and I didn't know anything about it. And, you know, just learning how to deal with it. It's probably the first time if someone had been able to diagnose me, that would have been the first time I noticed I was depressed. Outside of that, we think Mm. it's just a mood or something like that. You know, you don't know that depression has to be fought. When you're used to thinking of it as a mood, you're like, oh, it should pass. Depression ain't passing. All right. That ain't high, that ain't how it works. You're not gonna, <laughs> your, your team's not gonna win. And you're gonna be like, yeah, like, no, you know. But um, it was for me a double hit as a child of chaos because two things I learned to count on my mind and my body. So those two things, no matter what situation I was in, I could figure it out. But when I got cancer, right. my body and my mind betrayed me, so I believe. I started having thoughts and feelings that I didn't think I would have. I started to down myself. I started to use a perspective that wasn't mine. Right. And uh, when I got out of that, I had grown a bit, you know, um, you know, there's, there's this quote that says uh, the only time we can see like God is when we're using hindsight. Right. It's the only time you see order is after the fact. Mm -hmm. Right. And Cancer was one of those things where it taught me so many different skills that I didn't understand for myself personally, that would also help me connect to the people that I would later serve. You know, after that happens, me and my wife, we want to create legacy now. So we start trying to have children. We go through about, you know, roughly 10 years of trying to have children. And we had about 10 miscarriages throughout that. We did everything. We did in vitro. We did everything you possibly could. You know, we got on our knees. We tarried for our children, all of that. And um, there's another lesson in there. You know, I learned to enjoy being a father no matter how long it was. So if she was pregnant for a month, I was a father for a month. She was pregnant for three months. I was a father for three months. And what that did was change my perspective. So when we had my my first son, Xavier, me and my wife had prayed for him. And we remember the prayer. We talk about it all the time. We asked God, we said, at this point, we had lost so many babies. We said, God, just give us a chance. We don't care what you give us. Give us a chance, right? So he gives us Xavier and he's born at 25 weeks and he's two pounds, two ounces. He's probably as big as my cell phone. And, um, our family, Dula knows, our family have been praying for us. They've watched us go through this a lot of times. So when he came, it was a celebration. You know, it was, you know, it was the promise fulfilled. And um, we find out later on that uh, he had a brain bleed uh, in both hemispheres. And the doctors uh, said that they didn't know if he would be mentally retarded or anything. But um, they said that there would be some significant deficits. Uh, fast forward about 18 months and uh, we noticed throughout this time. We're first time parents, but we had been around babies forever. I mean, some of the first babies I'd ever been around was actually Sabira's family, right? The very first time I I watched some infants was Dula's children. And 
And I actually, here says I lost him, but I'm a boyfriend. It ain't my responsibility. We had we had Jalen and Makai at a mall. Lost my kids, yeah, man. We had Jalen and Makai at a mall, and we were supposed to, we were shopping in the store, and we both told each other to have the kids, all right? We got them back, all right? <laughs> all right? Those babies was lost for about 10 minutes, all right? <laughs> so, um, uh-huh. We realized that our son wasn't crawling and he wasn't, he was scooting on his butt, doing a lot of things. And uh, we got him, we were very proactive. We got him diagnosed pretty early and he had cerebral palsy and he still does. We've done all these treatments. But what's interesting about him is I know this may be kind of, you know, maybe not the best way to look at it, but it's almost like God did something to give him a challenge because my son is so exceptional in so many different ways. Like if you met this kid, you would love this kid. <laughs> like he is talented and smart and witty and you know, he doesn't let things define him. So that taught me a lot about myself. So uh, I was a firefighter at that time and uh I learned that trauma was pervasive. So um when I got done with firefighting and I decided to go forward with my mental health career, um, I went to work into the, in the urban core in our city. I wanted to work around the people who were disadvantaged and needed it the most. And also the, the other caveat was I wanted to have the strongest skill set. You don't get good unless you're in situations where you got to be good. Right. So I wanted to work with people who would press me. Yeah, it's the truth. You know, I had my own issues with addiction as far as my family and things like that. I work with a lot of addicts. I need to understand certain things, you know. Um, so when you asked about the clients that, you know, I serve, it's anybody to be honest, but there are some specifics when you are a trauma therapist, you know, I'm not just a normal psychotherapist. My specialty is trauma, just like someone's specialty may be addiction or eating disorder. So I I deal with the systems that create and sustain traumatic response. So whenever I'm working with someone, what I'm really doing is a lot of perspective work. I'm really trying to help people understand what it is, because when we're talking about that, what we're talking about is interpretation. So me becoming a therapist, if you walk through my life, it looks like, well, of course, this is what you were going to be. But at no point, that's what I thought I was going to be. At no point was that what, you know, I was willing to do whatever I had to do to make sure um, I was enough for my wife. You know, I set my I set my goal on who I wanted to be as a man on what I could do to make her proud. You know, every man needs a muse. If you don't have one, it's hard to say you're a man, right? So that's how I kind of came into therapy and that's how I kind of got to this place. That is, well, quite so a thanks for listening to just stories. <laughs> Right. All right, thank you guys, I'm out. That's it right there. <laughs> Drop the mic, we're done. <laughs> yeah, that was that was incredible, David. Um, but I'm gonna. So you mentioned trauma. You're uh, a trauma specialist, mm-hmm. and and we had an episode on um, black trauma because we wanted to separate it from the mental health uh, program. Uh, and 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 we think both of those things are are separate. But of course, we talked about it in a non-clinical, uh, in a clinical way. As a clinician, David. How do you distinguish between trauma and stress? Oh, that's a great question, Andreas. You know, it's something that I think is confusing to most people because we use terms, and this is a, a professional pet peeve, 
Nowhere in the world is clinical terminology used so haphazardly than in psychology, right? Someone has a mm. character trait and they automatically say, oh, well, you know, I'm OCD or, you know, I'm bipolar. No, those are actual clinical diagnoses. There's levels to these things, right? So when people say stress and trauma, there's something you got to understand. So if, if you were to take, if you were to look at yourself as a complete being, every system in your body wants to create what we call homeostasis or equilibrium. That's it. Anything right. stressful is just something disrupting that equilibrium. Now, notice I didn't say bad or good, right? Because mm. some people right. equate stress with qualities, polarities that don't exist, right? There are huge levels of good stress. There are people who perform when they're stressed. The playoffs are on right now. There are a lot of stressed out right. people making incredible shots. Why? Because it's outside of their norm. They're having to rise up. When we're talking about stress along the whole, what I tell people is um, traumatic experiences are always stressful, but stress isn't always traumatic, right? So right. when you right. look at trauma, you think of yourself as a container. And what happens is anything that exceeds your container is when you start to feel traumatized. So stress is being put into the container. When it exceeds that, that's when you're traumatized. I have a really big family and so does beer. So when you, if you guys came down to Thanksgiving for us, if you're a single child, oh, you're going to be stressed out and it could turn traumatizing because if you're messing around talking and you're not paying attention, we're eating and we're loud and people are, it may be 30 different conversations going on at once. And we move through that. We move through that because our environment says that's normal. That's there. So that's not a stressful environment. But if you're not used to that, you'll walk in and say, oh, man, this is a seed my container. This is why someone could do something really, really negative and not feel stressed out about it. But they'll get stressed if they get if they believe they're going to get caught for it. Right. So you can have someone commit a crime and there's no stress with that. But if I'm getting investigated, now the stress comes out. Right. Because it's whatever stimulus starts to become adversive. So whenever you talk about stress, think of it in generalities. When you talk about trauma, it's specificity. I see. Okay? Yeah, that's helpful. That's helpful. Mm. Yeah, thanks, David. Very good. So yeah, this is, this is, we're only just, you know, a couple of questions a few minutes in, and we've already got some really good gems and jewels uh, from, from David and, you know, listeners, as you heard him just kind of recount his, his story and whatnot, I promise you every bit of that is true. <laughs> and yeah. And, and my nephew is a miracle child, which, which I could do a whole episode <laughs> on just that boy. <laughs> you, you, you was always one of his biggest advocates. Eh? <laughs> that, that's, that's, that's my dude. That's my dude, man. So, so at the, at the top of the episode, we mentioned uh, stigma as a barrier for seeking treatment in black and brown communities. So, David, can you speak on, A, your experience with helping a client to overcome that stigma, and then B, how we as a black community or, or, or whether it's African-American or black folks across the diaspora, how can we destigmatize mental health? Great, great question. And it's probably... Uh... Outside of suicidality, it's one of the biggest fights that clinicians face, right? Because what's the point of having care if no one wants to access it, right? Right. Um, 
I would say that when you're talking about stigma, you have to first look at it as a whole. So mental health as a whole is stigmatized. And it's because for it's it's still a relatively new thing, right? So when we talk about mental health, we're talking about maybe 100 years, maybe. You can go back and look at philosophy. You can go back and look at science. But as far as having a field of study, this is why a lot of our theorists were 1920s, 30s, 40s, 50s, the 60s. We're going through certain. So it's still a relatively new, newish thing. So that's part of it so over a whole. But when you look at black and brown, when you look at those communities, what tends to happen is because healthcare already has some barriers in the first place, right? In the very first place, there's barriers with those populations. When people think of mental health care, they do something extremely weird. Now, it's not weird if you look at it from a historical standpoint, but it's weird in current time. And that's they automatically equate mental health or mental illness with the worst possible diagnosis, which is what, what they would consider crazy, but what we consider clinically psychosis, right? So whenever anybody is dealing with mental illness, their first thought is, I'm not crazy. Well, we don't do that with any other diagnosis. Mental, there's no medical diagnosis where it's like, <clears throat> I'm starting to cough. Oh, wait a minute. I must have AIDS, right? Oh, am I losing weight right now? I must like, we don't do that. But with mental illness, because it's not normalized as a true health component, then no one really thinks about that. If you think about it from a medical standpoint, physical health is taught to us from the very beginning. Children have recess because the school system understands how important it is to exercise. Well, why? Not because they want strong kids. It's because they understand there's a health requirement to it. Can't keep kids sitting in a room for eight hours and not, there's going to be issues, so they do it. But name the class that you've got that was about mental illness. Name the class that you've got where anybody normalized that. So you go through your entire school career. I didn't know about mental illness until I started learning how to treat it. That's how ridiculous it is. So part of that wow. stigma is that it's not normalized something. We'll do something like we know that kids have issues and we take a very pyramid pr perspective, right? Basic needs, Maslow, right? We need to make sure they got food, shelter. Okay. But why do those things exist? See, what people forget about Maslow's hierarchy of needs was it was a psychological concept. It was created so that you could look at someone and say, are they psychologically healthy? If they're not getting these things, it's going to be hard for you to dictate if they're going to be healthy. So when you start doing that, it's like, okay, yeah, that kid goes to school to get lunch because they are, they're not getting it at home. That's great. We provide lunch. I'm an app. I'm a... I'm a warrior for stuff like that. But anybody talk to that kid though? Did anybody sit down and say, it's, it's, you're not wrong to feel frustrated about things you can't control right now. I know you're eight and you're just responding to this, but there's things. So some of that stigma is the only time people see it, they see it in a very sensationalized or aggrandized manner. So you see somebody running around half naked down the street and you're like, well, I'm not going to tell anybody I'm dealing with depression. So we, we don't understand what it is. And the other part for our community is we have created a weird overlap with spirituality. 
So in our communities, what we're taught to do is if there is a mental health reason, it must be a spiritual reason. So you need to pray. You need to get them demons off. You need to do all that. I was raised Pentecostal, right? I went to church a lot, all right? I know very well about the demons, right? What's interesting, though, is when you say a medical diagnosis, no one brings spirituality into it. If I break my arm, no one says, well, you know, you need to pray that away. They say, go to the hospital. And here's what spiritual people do. They will pray for the hands that heal you. Right. So why is it no one says, let's pray for the therapist that's talking to you? Let's pray for the psychiatrist. It's because it gets to stay in this mystical world. Mm. So part of that stigma is, is, well, this is just a spiritual battle. Well, everything is, including the food you eat, if you want to take it that far. There's not a, there's not a part of your life that's not a spiritual battle, right? But when you do that, you get into our people and and I'll go on my little rant right now. Here's what <laughs> I've already been written, but I want to give y'all guys the real. It's nothing more frustrating to me than to spend seven, eight years of schooling, 10, a decade of working with people, getting all these skills, going to all these classes. And I'll have someone like Derek Jackson or Kevin Samuels get all people to run to them. And well, you know, they're telling us about relationships in life. None of these people have a a background or a a pedigree in psychology <laughs> but what they'll do is they'll get online and make a 15 minute video in a car and it'll get 30 million hits and it's like yeah so all you did was put a solve over the issue but did you point that person to help i can give you opiates and keep you pain free you still got an arrow in your neck when are we going to deal with that right so mm. when you talk about as a community destigmatize the mental health, you got like anytime you deal with stigma, you got to open your mouth. You got to let people know that it's not bad. I'm a therapist who sees a therapist. I see a therapist for things that have happened in my life, for the fact that I'm a trauma therapist. There's things that I want to be able to process. So I've had my patients say, well, David, man, you're such a great therapist. Why do you need a therapist? And I say, well, if I was a great surgeon, and I needed surgery, what would I do? Find a great surgeon. <laughs> Find a great surgeon. So a lot of times in our community, we don't really speak about these things. I did a, I did a rally, a Memorial Day. I was a guest speaker for a children of, of homicide, uh, of children that are victims of uh, violence, of homicide violence. And it was a crowd of maybe 150 people out there. And about half of them were victims of homicide, violence. They had had their family snatched from and all this. And I started having talks with them about what trauma really is. It's, it's not that this traumatic thing just happened to you. It's that you're stuck in the memory, that you haven't processed anything. So it's not that this bad thing you're supposed to just wake up one day and forget about. It's you have to move through it. A, a good adage for people who are trying to work with trauma is the only way through pain is through pain. Avoidance is a hallmark of trauma. If you stubbed your toe, or I know, I know Dula got kids. I know Andre. I don't know about you, Justine, but like if if you've ever walked into your kids' playroom with no shoes on and stepped on a Lego, you treat that room <laughs> like an active minefield for the next month. 
You don't do it. <laughs> because once you step on one of them Legos and it shoots up through, Man. you're done, right? Because your body doesn't want to feel pain. But sometimes we have to process it through pain. So a lot of times when people have trauma, they're doing everything in their power to avoid it. And that's what keeps it there. So when we're talking about destigmatizing, we got to have these conversations, but it has to be both sided. It can't just be about pain. It has to be about healing as well. So just saying, well, yeah, we're going through stuff as communities. That's not the problem. It's where's those success stories? Where's those people that have gotten better? So, so then what do you, okay, what do you, what would you say to, because one of the things we do in our community also, and I'm I'm glad you went there with the over-spiritualizing part, because another thing that we as men do, Mm -hmm. that it's a weakness to get help. It's, 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 you know, if you, if you need a therapist, you must be like, you're not like, you're not a real man. You're punking out. You, mm-hmm. you can't handle it. Men can handle stuff. And if you can't handle it, you're not a man. So right. what's good with you? So, so that, that's something that is normally the initial perspective of how men in particular, but all people look at mental health. I don't find that to be true. I find that most times what men are trying to do is avoid because mm-hmm. when you're running to that bottle, you know, that's a weakness that ain't stopped you from drinking. When you're womanizing, you know, that's a weakness that ain't stopping. So the thought that I'm not going to do this because it makes me seem weak is interesting when you look at the reality of it, because a lot of your behaviors prove the same thing. What it is, is it's very hard for a person, men in particular, to be vulnerable. So vulnerability is the best way to treat mental illness, right? If you think about vulnerability as like, like say this office I'm in, this office is a very strong building. It's designed to weather the storm. So most people think of strength as the ultimate quality to have in dealing with anything in life. Well, we're talking about psychologically, vulnerability is actually the strength. So when this building is strong as it is, we're in Tornado Valley. It'll be strong until a damn tornado rips the roof off and tosses it into the Missouri River. Because you're only strong until something stronger comes around. But vulnerability is different. See, vulnerability works like this. Those trees that are out there, they can get uprooted. Why aren't the blades of grass ever destroyed in a storm? We know that they're having G-force winds. They're ripping trees by the roots. So it cannot be that the roots are that strong. Here's the difference. The grass knows vulnerability. It never tries to stand against the storm. It moves with it. It moves with it. So most times when people are trying to use strength as their only means, they're getting chipped and chipped and chipped. So by the time they're trying to attack their problem, And I can speak from from personal standpoint. By the time I tried to attack an issue that was heavy in my life, I was so much less of what I was that it scared me to try to attack it. The minute I got vulnerable, I was able to do it. I brought in the people around me. The minute I got vulnerable, I leaned and I was able to take hits that I thought would destroy my ego. I was able to connect with my wife in a different way, my kids in a different way, because vulnerability is the ultimate strength. Now, it comes with certain disadvantages because the people you love the most are the people you're going to be the most vulnerable to. But now they have weight, right? 
I never feel fatter than when my kids are around because I'm so vulnerable <laughs> around them. They're going to let me know, daddy, you, you fat. Look at your belly. I'm like, come on, man. Like, you know, no, nobody in normal life would say that to me. All right. I'd be swinging on somebody. But because I'm vulnerable with my kids, they're like, we got carte blanche to say whatever we want. And I want that relationship. I, 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 I need that relationship. So the people that matter to me are always going to be the ones that I let in the most. When I have a strength mechanic, I push those people away and I make excuses. I don't want to burden them with my pain. That's how strong people mm. think. You know, not realizing that there's not a person who loves you that will ever push you away because you're asking for help. But when I'm strong, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to suffer because I take that as an honorable thing. I'll just suffer. No, vulnerability is there. So though I agree to your original thought pattern, do I do? Because I see that all the time, right? I get more men in therapy because their wives told them than anything. But when we get in there, what they realize is, A, I'm a very real person. So sometimes when people think about therapy, they think there's an approach to therapy we call Rogerian. And that's to sit back with the pad and just kind of be quiet and very reflective right. and kind of, hey, how are you doing? And, you know, how that make you feel and all that. I don't do crap like that at all. That's not my style. <laughs> right. My, my approach is way too damn real because we're dealing with real issues. My, my approach clinically is almost mechanical. If your car had an issue and you brought it to me and I was your mechanic and I had you diagnose it, you wouldn't bring it back to me. You would if, if you're sitting in there and, and you have I'm different. I'm going to sit down and I'm going to start teaching you from session one skill application. I'm going to start teaching you where wisdom lies and I'm going to start showing you how understanding works. Right. Therapy has to work hmm. in a concerted effort. Right. Knowledge, wisdom understanding. That is how we're supposed to grow. Knowledge is data-driven. Everything at the bottom. That's just getting enough information. That's great. Wisdom is skill application. It is the ability to use the knowledge for your benefit. Understanding is the why. Once you grab the why, then you get how it all comes together, and now you're able to freestyle. This is why jazz was so incredible, right? they took these instruments and they were like we know the notes we got that we got the skill but now it's the understanding did you know that i can make it sound like this did you know that i can do that so when you look at a person in life you as a clinician when we're talking about mental illness sometimes you have to realize what level they're on every one of you have driven a car mm -hmm. every one of us at we're we're, we're american at 16 17 we learn how to drive a car we get a license we get out there that's knowledge. We know we need to put gas in it, right? Wisdom is how, how often you put gas in. What are you going to use? My wife, she struggles with that, right? She don't know how to keep her gas tank full, all right? So there's, there's some wisdom <laughs> lacking in there, right? She's the, she's the one that's going to test the, the line every time. Well, the light came on. I must have 30 more miles. Why would you even do it, right? That's, that's her, right? <laughs> that's why me get so frustrated because we have the wisdom to know that's a long walk. My wife, this is what I learned. She doesn't have the wisdom because it ain't a walk she's going to take. If worst thing happens, she's calling me. So, <laughs> so she's looking at it totally different, right? But understanding is this, right? Knowledge is we're driving cars. Wisdom is we know what fuel to use and when to fill it up. Here's understanding. How does a combustion engine work? Mm. 
So some of you may have people that have driven cars for 70 years and can't tell you how a combustion engine works because that's the why. So therapy is always supposed to move you to the why. If you're sitting in my office telling me life sucks for you, no shit. Like, like that's the point. Like you're sitting, like, I don't just show up to therapy because everything's great. Like, (laughs) Like that makes no sense. Right. Matter of fact, if I was a therapist for happy people, I would need more therapy because I'd be like, man, everybody's life is incredible. <laughs> like everybody's out here doing it. Like, no, it's <laughs> it's what you do with what you know. So when you talk about stigma, it's conversations like this. You guys don't know you're putting a little bit of drops into that bucket to that deeper, bigger conversation for people being able to say, here's what happens. Most times when I'm talking about mental illness, I always run to somebody that says, if this was explained to me the way you're explaining to me. I wouldn't have a bad feeling about going to talk to somebody. And that's because most times no one's talking about it like this. Hey, David, quick question. Is trauma um, a defense mechanism? Is it it something good, beneficial? Is there there good to trauma? Mm. Not not, not a traumatic event, of course, but the body's response to it. So there's there's a couple of great books by a lot of good uh, clinicians. Body Keeps the Score by Bessel van der Kolk. A lot of so what it really what what trauma really does to the body is it preps it for a response. So when we are traumatized, whatever we choose to do isn't a bad thing because it's going to keep me alive, mm. right? I've had victims of mm. sexual assault and and rape say, David, I should have fought them off. No, you shouldn't. Your body's going to give you three. We know it's four now, but the research is still growing. It's fight, flight, and freeze, and then there's fawn. We'll talk about fawn in a little bit, but those main three are kind of those physiological responses that our body gets ready for. If this woman got raped and she stood still, she numbed out, she disassociated to get through it, and then she makes it to me, then her body did the right thing. She may not feel that way because she's like, I wish I could have fought him off. But your body did the right thing. And here's what you have to understand. Mind and brain are two different things. See, brain is physiological. The mind is cognitive, belief systems and things like that. You cannot change what your brain is going to do to keep you safe. Why? Because of how the brain is developed. From the brain stem to the limbic system to the prefrontal cortex, whatever comes first cannot be vetoed by anything afterwards. So a lot of times you're in the prefrontal cortex saying, well, I wish I would have done this. Your limbic system said you don't got a choice. Do you know why people drown? It's not because you don't know you can't breathe water. It's because the limbic system down here in that, in that reptile brain, that brainstem says, open your mouth because I need oxygen. Wow. So when you wow. think about a trauma response, it's always good in the moment. There's not a such thing as a bad response in the moment. The issue is afterwards, how we do it. And kind of a good rule of thumb for trauma is everything above the diaphragm speeds up. Everything below the diaphragm slows down. So one of the biggest things that I find with traumatized people is they don't know physiologically how their bodies are being affected. I have so many couples, so many patients that I treat that think they have sexual dysfunction. They're like, I want to be intimate with my partner. I want to do all that, but I can't. It just doesn't work because you're traumatized. Like your body isn't you. You're you got so much cortisol in your system. 
that is telling your body to put blood and shut it to your core. All that blood that you thought was going to go to your arousal zones. No, your body's like, no, we need that up here by the heart. So a lot of times people will misconstrue the trauma response because they do not understand how the body's working. So though there are some benefits in the moment, if you don't reach homeostasis again, those things will degrade your system. Lots of nuggets. So two things that you said, uh, David, that stood out to me. The only way through pain is through pain. Listeners, if you're listening to this, man, like it sucks, but go through it. The only way through pain is through pain. Then the other one is therapy allows you to turn pain to power. Crazy. Oh my goodness. Just that's what, that's and, what think of, and think about this, Justine, right? Not not as just a slick little metaphor, but that's the that's the mm. skill set that we learn how to take our spiritual, our ethical, our moral selves and translate that into power in our real lives. If you go to the gym and you don't feel burned, mm-hmm. you didn't gain nothing that day. Right? So there are people who's like, I got to feel pain because that way I know I'm going to come back into that. We are so pain aversive that we think mm-hmm. all pain is is a message. All pain is is a message. It's saying something's wrong, something's happening, right? Mm-hmm. When you ignore it by avoidance, you're sitting in this relationship now. You've been in it five years, but you've been hurt for four of them. You knew. You knew that message was being told to you. You just kept avoiding it. So then mm-hmm. you didn't get power. And power isn't just walking away. Because even that is a flight response. That's still a trauma response. Some people are very good at cutting and running. They got the cutoff game is great. They're like, nope, you hurt me. I'm cutting you off. And they start to get smaller and smaller. Here's what I tell a lot of my patients when I treat them. I don't even have to tell you what your path looks like. Sometime next week, I want you to volunteer at a nursing home and talk to the people who use your technique in life. See how many people are visiting them. See how lonely they are when they cut everybody else around them. The biggest thing that God taught us was redemption. Everybody has a path to it. Everyone. But when I'm in pain, I this week I do I do I have an IOP. I have my own private practice. I do all this stuff. One of the things that I found out probably about three, four years ago was that when I talk about wisdom and skill application, adults don't have many skills. I'm teaching people right now how to forgive because most adults have never forgiven a day in their life. They've tolerated, they've accepted, they put up with, they've ignored, or they've moved, but they've never actually forgiven. So they don't know how. So I literally have to sit them down and teach them what forgiveness is and what forgiveness isn't. Forgiveness is such a you thing that you will be trapped by that person that you don't forgive for the rest of your life. And they don't have to do anything else. You're going to live in spite. You're going to live in anger. It's a transformative thing. So when I say these skills, I'm talking to people that are like, well, damn, David, I don't think I've ever actually forgiven anybody. And I'm like, I know, because I didn't, I didn't know how to forgive people. Child of chaos. That's not a skill that came up front, right? I know how to manipulate people. You learn that skill when you're a child of chaos. You walk into a room and you determine if you're going to get hit or not. 
You determine how to make people feel good so that that way you can get, you learn all those skills. Survival. Mm-hmm. So those other, those soft skills, those things that we learn on the backside, no one ever teaches us. So good. We just are expected to know it. Yeah. Oh, man. Mm-hmm. That's very, really good. very good. Oh, man, listeners. Literally, liquid gold has been dropped in this episode. That's I don't know. Like this, listeners, like this should go viral. I'm just saying. Like if I'm if you, you know someone who needs to, uh. <laughs> right? Seriously, honestly, soldiers. Like if you know someone who could benefit from listening to this episode, please, I am asking you to share it with them. Like I know people already who I'm going to be sending this episode to because it's just so good. Thanks, David. Okay, so now it's time for our liner notes. This is where each one of us will share a song, an artist, a book, just a piece of culture that we've been enjoying over the past week or the past few weeks that's given us life. And David, because you are our guest today, you get to go first. So what's been giving you life recently? You know what? Uh, Me and my wife, you know, we have a lot of things in common you know, one of the things that makes our relationship good, but we've been really, you know, we'll get on and off of these things, but we really been back in our tiny desk concert rotation lately. Right. Mm. So we've been catching a lot of good artists come, you know, you got to Sometimes you got to go back in it. So, you know, snow Allegra and all like, oh. yeah, we're, we're back in that world where, you know, when you hear people, musicians and singers that can really do it, it's, it's, you know, I try to explain it to somebody, but then I, I realized I was old. That hurts. I'm like, yeah, it's like MTV Unplugged. <laughs> They're like, well, what is that? I'm like, I, uh, right. what is that? Yeah, I'm like, I can't what even, I, I mean, man, I don't know how to tell you, but like, just go to NPR and look at Tiny Desk. You're going <laughs> to love every bit of So yeah, we've been on our, yes. our Tiny Desk rotation <laughs> lately. That's really That's good. good one. Now, I didn't know That's Snow a did That's a Tiny oh, Desk, so I got to go check that out. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's, oh. it's, it's that thing. Is it? Okay. All right. Ooh. Um, okay. So I'm going to share mine. I think for me on my end, I have been listening to a lot of Afrobeat music, y'all. So Afrobeat, it's kind of like a weird mix of maybe like reggae. Uh, I don't know. Yeah. And it's like, it's just a very unique style of West African music. If you've never listened to it before, please go check it out. Very good stuff. I have also been listening to a podcast called the Naked Marriage Podcast, y'all. And it's by uh, a couple called Dave and Ashley Willis. And it's just so good. They talk about relationships. They talk about a little bit about trauma, healing, dishonesty, uh, the enemies of intimacy in any relationship. So if you are someone who wants to learn more about that, you should check it out. And I'll add that to our liner notes too. Yeah, cool. Um, okay, I'll, I'll keep mine short. Um, mine is, we. my wife and I discovered the show, discovered, we hey. uh, we were recommended the show called New Girl. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't this like an old show? It is an old show. It's like from 2011. I never heard about it until now. So what? our two oldest love new girl told us about, about it. Mm-hmm. Like, Oh, you got to check out the show, you know, blah, 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 whatever. And I've been looking for a show that I could really get into for the longest time since pretty much West wing. I, I haven't found anything. <laughs> so, now this is not West wing, of course, but this show is hilarious. It's, it is funny. It's a good show. It's, I mean, but the thing, and, 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 and Katie and I talked about this, I, 
I think what we like about the show is just they got each other's back, like serious. Mm-hmm. Just a group of friends put in these crazy situations. You can't you can't believe that there's a group of people that uh unstable (laughs) (laughs) and and that tight and then that tight you know and you you kind of you're kind of like you know you kind of wish for stuff like that you know just a larger group of of people that just have you back and 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 they just anyway i can i can but the situation they get in the writing is really good Mm. it you know we just finished all seven seasons it's one of those it's one of those shows that like oh you know it's on netflix and it's coming near the end and we're like oh now what because right. we really liked that. But so anyway, <laughs> new, new girl. Okay. So, hold up. Sorry. Sorry, Abdul. Is there, Andres, is there someone on that show called Winston? Is there? Yes. An yes. 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 Got yes, it. Is. is that where your cat's name from? Winston? Actually, no, it's not. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no. But yeah. <laughs> so I started, I started following that show after they had the episode that Prince was on because you know me and Prince. Oh. Right. So, Right, but but yeah, my 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 older kids love it too, and they turn me on to it. So yeah, yeah. it's it's a dope show. Um, so I would say what's giving me life right now is <laughs> birthday parties. Mm. Oh, no. So <laughs> no, listeners, this is going to turn to three hours. It, it won't. It won't. It won't. <laughs> so listeners, uh, some no. of you may have heard that. Um, when the last episode of my birthday was coming up. So as we record this episode, my birthday was exactly one week ago today. And, you know, and I, I turned, I turned and the turn up was all the way real. Like no, it was it, wild. <laughs> it was like, it was like, it was like a five or six day thing. It started, it started Wednesday yeah, night. For you it did. Yeah. yeah. For me, it did. It was a Wednesday night. And went all the way to my birthday was on Sunday. So from Sunday. Wednesday night until Monday, like the last day, Monday was Memorial was Day. Yeah. Monday Memorial Day, right? And well, we were recording, and after we recorded, you send us a a, a picture. Like this is Wednesday oh, the night. Turn up. Oh, oh that's of, right. Of shots. Yes, we, <laughs> you guys yeah, we started with shots. Like what? Ten o'clock at night. Shots of Patron, dog. <laughs> we it, it went down. It went down. <laughs> It went down. Yeah. And then we had like a, it was a catfish fry one night, a, sh- a oh, shrimp and crab oh. boil one night. So yes. it, apparently it made David jealous. So, so his wife made him some too. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> that was so fun. So, so and, fun. And we had the most, so there's a game called Ox God, A U X G O D. It is the best party game that I've ever encountered personally. Yes. And you got to have the right people though. I, we were talking about this. I, I, I yeah, think, I think you, you kind of matter. Do. Yeah, you kind of do. Okay. So I think the people and the genre, you know, like if you have mm. like the right set of people for the genre of music, I think, right. yeah, that yeah. helps yeah. a lot. But anyway, still. So here's, here's why, without going into a big long thing, here's why this, that gave me life because, you know, listeners, we're in our series on black on black love, right? Different aspects of black love. We had an episode on black joy this last week and specifically the Friday and Saturday and Sunday and of Sunday. that day and was 100% unadulterated black joy. Yep. That's, that's what yes. it was. Yes. I mean, we yes. celebrated also uh, our friend's uh, um, marriage anniversary. It was yep. one of your friends also oh, yeah. the day before Crystal. his birthday. Yep. You know, so 
Oh my I mean, gosh, y'all. And during yeah. the game, you know, they dance and they pick the song. And it was, yeah, it was. Yes. It, it was fantastic. It was a wedding anniversary and two birthdays that weekend. Yeah. The word I kept thinking about, and I told you guys about this, was free. That night, uh-huh. that Ox God game night. <laughs> it yes. was like, yeah, we were just, we were just. I told I told Abdul that this just reminded me like this was like the cookout, a frat party. This was the cookout. <laughs> it was yeah, it, it was us being in the dorms way back in the nineties. It was the whole it was the it whole was, thing. I was back in the nineties. I was I was truly back in the nineties. Yeah. So, so shouts, good. shouts to Mark and Crystal on their anniversary and hanging out with us. Shouts mm-hmm. to yep, <laughs> shouts to Phil and Kelly, shouts, shouts to, to Stephanie and Hub. We and and everyone who came through the party. It was fantastic. Okay, listeners, side note, because I absolutely have to do this. Uh-oh. So for Ox God, Andres, Abdul, and I were all on different teams. And guess who won twice? My team did. <laughs> One, two. Abdul, Nobody care about that. Nobody care about that. <laughs> nope, they do. They do. I care about it. Abdul. <laughs> <laughs> well, okay. So it, it was a battle, though. It, oh, yeah. Yeah. It, yes. it's, so my it team... Was- my team didn't win, but my team didn't win because of two, like there were two specific moments in the whole night. They just put the nail in the coffin for my team. <laughs> and one was a freestyle. So oh, there was the a whole, y'all. There, there was a whole big thing of do a freestyle oh. <laughs> and, and me and Phil faced off in the freestyle and he got me one line that shut the whole thing down. <laughs> and then we did like a Michael Jackson dance off. In that another was round, amazing. <laughs> and, that was amazing. And I oh. had it up on ten, and this <laughs> fool turned it up to twenty. <laughs> it was lit. So yeah. And the last thing I'll say is that Sunday was also cool because, like yes. you guys know, I'm a I'm a musician, and so we mm-hmm. went to a winery. A band that I know was playing, and I got to sit in for a couple of songs and 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 do my thing behind the mic. So that was fun too. Okay, listeners, Abdul, absolutely. Killed it. And here's the thing that really stood out to me. When Abdul took the mic, the like the stage was packed. I know. Like that was, pe- yeah, he started singing and then you know, more people like, came to this. People to, like to we the were dance dancing. Floor and, and dancing. It, was, yeah. it was I'm like, okay, we need a rerun. Like we need to do this again before yeah, the end of the summer. On, this, on the, a remix weekend. Yeah. We do. Yeah. All right. Well, that was that was really cool. That was really cool. That was good. Memory just going just going back to, to that to that weekend. It was really good. All right, welcome back. We've been discussing black mental health. And we're just gonna keep going with our next question. So, David, how important is cultural competent care? I think that when you talk about the parallels between stigma and buy-in, um, cultural competency becomes like one of the gateways to get people in. That does not mean that, you know, the core of cultural competency isn't assimilation, right? Mm -hmm. It's accommodation. In order to be culturally competent, you got to be able to have a balanced perspective of the people that you're treating. And most importantly, you got to have respect for the difference. You know, um, a lot of times in clinical worlds, Things have been looked at historically with a a white lens. You know, when we talk about, you know, psychology on a whole, you know, people of color were considered deviants, you know, for a lot of things. And when when we're when we're discussing cultural competency, what we have to remember is 
that culture is ever evolving. Yeah. So you can get caught in the trap of thinking, well, yeah, yeah, I care about all people. You're right. That's great. But do you want to understand all people? Right. Goes back to that. Why? It's 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 easy for me to say the DSM, which is, you know, our diagnostic Bible. Right. It's where we get our diagnosis. I can look at earlier iterations of DSM and say they had homosexuality as a literal mental disorder. Right. So when I'm dealing with someone that is of that ilk, if I'm just going to be like, well, I'm just going to stick to the fact. No, a lot of times when you're trying to be culturally competent, it's not about asking questions. It's about asking the right question. Mm. Right. I'm not on an interview with you for you to understand me. If you're a clinician, you should already have a certain idea of who I am. When I took my clinical exam, right, in social work, right, most people don't know that uh, 60% of therapy is done by social workers, right? Uh, Most therapists are social workers, clinical social workers like me. I got my original degree in social psychology, and I was going to go to PhD route and become, but I mean, unless you're trying to do some psychometric testing, it's just a couple more years of school, a lot of money didn't plan out, right? So, I got my master's in social welfare and my clinical test, it had about 30 questions that were just on Asian. Mm. That Mm. if I don't pass that test, I don't have a clinical license. They didn't tell me it was going to be on Asians. They didn't say, hey, make sure you study about Asians. They literally gave me case examples. You're in a session with an Asian male and an Asian female and the female doesn't want to talk. Mm-hmm. They're waiting. You have to do you now. Granted, I'm a geek in a lot of ways. So <laughs> I, I love all things cultural. So I, I have a pretty good grasp. But I understood that there is a certain cultural aspect towards, hey, letting the man lead. You know, like it's not that I'm not wanting to answer your questions. It's not even that I'm, you know, Americans, we like to take everything with the dominant submissive thing. We don't sometimes understand culturally synergy. So we look at things and say, well, I wish I had a submissive. I wish I had a submissive woman. Well, you would if you knew what the hell you were doing. <laughs> like, like that's the, <laughs> you. Of, of course, she's not going to be. She's worried about if, if you're if you're driving the, the car and she got to worry about if she going to wake up alive or not. Ain't nobody being submissive to that. So that whole test was 30 questions of just different things about Asian culture that I'm glad that I had had experiences. You know, I had lived in Japan for years. I had 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 certain experiences with that. But as a clinician, if you're going to sit down in a community, know the makeup of the community. Mm. Know the makeup of the community. You don't have to be fluent in Spanish, but you got to understand some words. You got to understand some things that are going to help you. You know, you have to understand what the makeup of the community is, which I think sometimes is a disservice because a lot of times you have such well-intentioned people, but they're being culture shocked right out of school, right? They're, they're, they're wanting to help these populations, but they've never really had any interaction with them. So I tell a lot of people who talk to me about becoming a therapist and things like that, get involved, yeah. understand your community. Mm. You can give an hour a week and it'll give you more than four years of college. As far as cultural competence, you can see how people interact. You can see what's going on. 
Hmm. You know, um, for me being an African-American male, being a black man, um, it is a survival trait for me to understand how cultures work. So for me, I'm in situations where I can talk to anyone. What's interesting about cultural competency is when you have it, it is refreshing to the patient. The reason why I'm a niche therapist with a certain population is because I have those experiences. I've been deployed. I've worked first responder world. So if I'm talking to a combat vet, he doesn't have to tell me a bunch of stories for me to understand what he went through. We're moving past all that. I know it was messed up. Now let me show you what you have to do. Hmm. If I'm sitting there and I'm talking to first responders, I didn't ran those same calls. I know the loss you feel when you're working on that pediatric and they die under you. I get all that. So it makes me more engaging and endearing to the patient. And whatever you're dealing with a client or patient, and this has been proven through science studies, scientific studies for the last 30 years, it doesn't even matter what type of therapy you use. Your efficacy rate is determined by the relationship you build with the patient. So no matter what treatment modality I use, if I can't build a relationship with you, it doesn't mean anything. So when you're culturally competent, you're going to be able to build relationships and it's not going to be a scene from dangerous minds where a young white lady comes in and (laughs) got the kids singing and all that. No, because that's not normally what happens in those schools, right? That's not normally what happens. You don't come in and save the day. What happens is it's a lot of dominant society teachers in there working their asses off and being just as frustrated with the system as the rest of us. They don't come in and save the day. They're working in the system and they're agreed. They're like, this is too, because that's then when they understand the culture they're working with. So that's how that kind of works. If that answers that's your question. Good. That's good. Yeah. That's very, that's very, very good. And David, you know, just as a follow-up, so I'm curious because a lot of times BIPOC people of color are leaving, you know, are living in communities that are predominantly white. And therefore a lot of the mental health practitioners in those communities will be white. So I guess, what would you tell someone who's in that situation? Like if I'm a person of color and I'm looking to get some mental health therapy, but all you know, like all my options are white people. Am I better off not getting the help or should I just go ahead and maybe for lack of a better term, compromise? You're asking the, like, the questions I answer every week, right? Like, though the concerns that you guys are talking about are literally the things that people say. Because I'm an African-American therapist, I get a lot of times people are like, oh, I want a black therapist. I want to, and I get what they're saying and I understand it. What I tell people is, You can learn from anybody and anything. Mm -hmm. What you learn is determined by you. You can learn what not to do from someone. If you don't have an understanding of mental illness at all, right? And your foray into the mental health world is going to be blocked because the person that's going to introduce you to it does not under, you don't believe understands what's going on, then you're losing half of the battle. Right. Mm-hmm. Let, let me give you an example. Right. Um, I do a lot of substance abuse work, though. I'm not a, a, a specialist with substance abuse. Um, trauma and substance abuse come hand in hand. And as a clinical social worker, we can work with anything. I just don't necessarily specialize in that. Right. And I've had patients come up to me and say, well, David. How the hell can you help me with my addiction if you've never been through? It? And mm-hmm. I say, man, you're absolutely right. I just might know some things like 
how I didn't become an addict. <laughs> All the skills you don't know, not the ones you do. Yes, that may make sense. But if you're going to talk, let's talk money, right? Mm -hmm. If I'm going to talk to somebody, right, I can learn from the stockbroker who can teach me or I can learn to the, from the homeless man who used to be a stockbroker. Both of them are going to teach me a lesson. One is going to show me how not to go there. One is going to show me how to live in the other place. Mm -hmm. So sometimes what happens with therapy is, well, if they don't understand me, how can they help me? Mm -hmm. Yeah, but first figure out what you understand about yourself. Mm -hmm. First understand what you understand. I have never been raped, but I've helped countless rape survivors. Why? Because I know what feeling helpless feels like. Yeah. I know what feeling powerless feels like. And most times what I'm teaching them is don't fragilize yourself. That's what you don't get. You don't understand that. Well, David, no one's ever going to, I'll give you a, a, a short little story. I had a, I had a patient that I saw and she could never connect with anybody because she had been uh, molested as a child. And she said, well, my virginity was taken away from me. I'm, I'm dirty because of it, and no man will want me. And I said, well, what do you mean your virginity was taken care away from you? She says, it was taken from me. You know, my, my hymen, every, like, it was penetration. I said, okay, what if you're riding a horse? She said, what do you mean? I was like, what if all those same things happened to you? Your, your hymen was damaged, you bled. There was, what if you jumped a pole and fell down, and there was, what, well, no, it's not. I said, no, your problem is you've been looking from it from pain and not power. See, you didn't you don't have sex until you have choice. Your virginity is still intact until you decide to give it to someone. And if you have a man who doesn't understand that, then that's not the man you give it to. Because some men exist in this world to restore. They'll look at that old car and they'll spend a thousand hours bringing it back to its beauty. Making it better and more. You're looking at it from, oh, I'm rusty and I'm dirty. Find a man that will restore. Find the one that's going to understand that this is the first time you've freely given me this. This is the first time you've made a choice and that has so much more impact. But when you don't understand that you can learn from everyone, you'll say, well, I live in a predominantly, I get it. But here, and, and I don't want to say like it's the responsibility of the patient, but I do want to put it this way. They will never understand our culture if they never have opportunities to understand. That's true. Mm. That's yeah. good. That's good. Man. Oh. <laughs> well, yeah, so Justine, good. how you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I'm speechless. Um, so good. So Okay, this 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 might be a, a bit of a softball question. I don't know, but if you had a magic wand and you could fix any aspect of mental health, including the profession itself, what would that solution be? What would you fix? Yeah, if looking at it from the, what I've done from the inside and the out, if I could fix anything about it, I would say that we would normalize the experience of mental illness. See, what people don't talk about is everyone has experienced mental illness. Everyone. You just didn't have a therapist or a psychiatrist there to say it at that moment, right? You just didn't know. So most people, because they go, go back to what we were talking about earlier, they say, well, I'm not crazy. They think that eliminates everything. But it doesn't. 
I can show you everything that you think is crazy has a baseline perspective that we say is normal, right? So let's take the top. Let's take uh, suicidality, right? Someone wanting to take their lives, we could say that's the craziest thing in the world. Why would anybody want to do it? I have my own beliefs about how that works and what's going on. That's for another time. In this moment in time, I can say, yes, at the extreme end of that, wanting to actively take your life, I will look at it and say, you're not thinking right, right? But who in the world hasn't had a thought of, I'm driving on a bridge, what if I went over it? Everybody has that. As a matter of fact, let me explain some. There's industries that exist because we like to play in that world. Do you realize that all a roller coaster is, is a suicide machine? It's literally you being afraid to die, but you still got on it. <laughs> you pay good money. You waited in line for three hours to go up slowly to feel like you're about to die. Right. Wow. All right. Right. I've never thought about so, it like that. Because most people don't. That's that understanding, right? So when people say someone's suicidal, what we're saying is you've moved out of choice. As long as you have choice, then you understand that you're balanced. When Ooh. you stop having choice, that's when it's that's why depression kicks so much ass. Because depression takes choice away. I'm sitting in the bed and it's not that, man, if I would just get up and do something today, right. I don't want to do it. Because here's what I understand about it. And this is this is for your listeners, a quick little gut check, right? Sometimes people ask me, well, I haven't been depressed. I don't know what depression feels like. And without doing a Bex inventory or something, I always ask patients before we get into psychometric testing, I say, when's the last time you woke up feeling good without precipitate or cause? You just woke up in a good mood. That will tell you how long you've been struggling with something. Because a normal swing should happen. There should be, if you're like, man, okay. Well, it ain't been this month. Uh, 2020 was rough. And you're going to come with all types. Oh, it was COVID. Now you're in 2019. <laughs> you should have a day where you just woke up ready to go. But you didn't because you have a mood disorder most times. So what happens with depression is I start at the bottom of the hill, right? Like say there's a mountain. And at the top of that mountain is life. I don't care if it's work, family, sex, whatever you think life is, you go up that mountain. Depressed people are going to work their way up that mountain. They're going to get to the top. They're going to be happy about it. They're going to close their eyes and go to sleep, wake up the next morning, right back at the bottom of the mountain again. You're up higher. So then they're going to say, all right, let me put my bootstraps on. Let me go back up the mountain. They're going to do that. And they did it. And they're going to close their eyes. They're going to wake up. And they're going to be right back there again. See, what people don't understand about depression and why suicidality is there, and why it's such in a, it, the, the corollaries work so well is most times with mental illness, when people move to suicidality, it isn't because they don't love anybody. It isn't because it's because they're tired. They're tired of every day looking the same for them. They know that their wife loves them. They know that their kids, they know, but I'm tired because every morning, I wake up at the bottom. So then you know what people do? They make the bottom comfortable. They put a couch in that bad boy. They start sitting back. They're like, I'm just going to live at the bottom. So then you're going to have somebody higher up the mountain tell you some high up the mountain stuff that makes sense mm. to them. Hey, hey, David, you know what? If the top is here, won't you just get out and go see a movie? And you're like, yeah, for you, that brings you to here. If I do it, I'm just right here. I still ain't at the top. Hmm. All the stuff that you tell me to do 
is only going to give me a short thing because you're going to wake up and you're going to still be close to the mountain. I'm not going to be. I'm going to be at the bottom. So what you have to do with therapy, what you have to do with kind of normalizing that is letting people understand that that mood disorder is there and it can be treated. It's not to get you to the top of the mountain. There's no clinical goal I've ever given a patient that says you're going to be happy. My clinical goals are baseline. I'm going to teach you how to live life in this moment. Because then you get to decide what you do with it. But when you're at the bottom, you're like, well, what's the point? Mm-hmm. And then you got people around you. And this is this is real slick that mental illness to do. Man, I'm going to hide that I'm at the bottom. Mm-hmm. So you got on a full suit. You got on your Sunday's best. You're still at the bottom wearing a face for everybody. Right. So then everybody takes it because everybody is at the top of the mountain. They're like, mm-hmm. oh, it looks like David's at the top of the mountain. Don't worry about it. And here's what's interesting. You start to feel lonely and alone surrounded by people. Mm-hmm. Wow. And so if I had a wand, I would normalize those experiences so people understand there's a lot of people at the bottom. And there's some of us that know how to traverse that mountain. There's some of us who know how to, we go get you to the top, but we go get you halfway. Do you know why Everest is such an accomplishment? Because they won't tell you how many people died trying to do it. We only hear about the ones that make it. (laughs) But here's the thing from a mental health perspective. I'm proud of the person who made it halfway to Everest. That's more than everybody else. Mm -hmm. That's more than everybody else. So when a depressed person says, I woke up today and I washed my butt, I didn't feel like going to work, but I put it. That's a win for you. Quit trying to do top of the mountain stuff. You ain't got that yet. Enjoy the fact that you got up today and you did something that you didn't want to do. Wow. Amazing. So that, yeah, that there. So we have, I think, maybe one more question. But but before, before Justine asked her question, I, I wanted to just kind of take a quick side trip. So, Andres, if I can ask, how does any of that land for you? Oh, man. I mean, <laughs> I mean. Everything landed. Um, I mean, if you were if you were up close, you know, if you were sitting across the table from each, I mean, you would see my eyes water. Yeah, you know what I mean, because that's you're you're reading my mail, David. Yeah. You know, I I I was there, I was there, and and the thing I wanted to add is is um, it's not like depressed people want to stay depressed of course because there were plenty of times that i was like okay andres snap out of it <laughs> just because it's it's like you're having it's like you're having an out-of-body experience there's like, no choice you yeah yeah you're you that's exactly right like it's like you're trapped and you know that you're trapped but you can't get out and you're like you know that's why i mean and and something you mentioned earlier that uh, with the with the brain, you know, like I take pride in my brain, right? And I'm like, well, you can solve this problem. You can, this is a, this is this is this is this is about you don't know something, and you just mm. gotta figure this out. You just haven't figured it out, nah. You know, for me and for my experience, it took going to see the doctor, and I got some medication because and, you were still trying to use knowledge. Yes, we're talking about wisdom and understanding. So you're mm-hmm. like, I know the problem. 
Right, right, that's right. The, you know, yeah, you don't have to tell them the about price. How the engine works. You're yes. like, I know my car needs gas. Right. Okay, but if you try to start that car and it doesn't do all the stuff that you do, guess what you do? I immediately got to take it to somebody because right. this has just exceeded what I can do. Yep. Right. Yep. Yep. My I car fi- don't start. I'm taking it to somebody. Yep. I finally got to a point like, okay, I'm I'm not gonna solve this. Um, if and if I keep going down this road, it's it's just gets darker and darker. So yeah. Uh, no, it everything landed. Wow, <laughs> everything landed. Wow. So yeah, thank, yeah, thank, thank you for that incredible exchange right there, David. And then also, Andres, thank you for just the candor and your willingness to kind of to oh. share some of that struggle. That that I, I'll speak for myself, but I, I think I speak for you guys too. I really hope that that just blessed somebody and that that mm-hmm. something in that landed for somebody and that's why i want to be honest with it. you know i mean yeah it, it, you're not gonna win fighting it mm. you're not gonna win mm-hmm. you're not gonna win yeah yeah it just so get it, the, it it just gets bigger and bigger it it like it, it it's like it gains power from you <laughs> mm. yeah. well let's let's get even a little bit more esoteric right you're not gonna win it because it is you this is why cancer is so hard to fight how do how do i distinguish what's good or bad if it is me if i'm in my mental scape and my mental scape is saying these things who how do i we're taught what to think not how to think so when you're in a mental health when you're seeking a mental health professional we're teaching you the hows not the what's the hows so when you start to learn, this is why medication and therapy together is the best, tr- because some things are going to be totally biological, right. chemical imbalance and things like that. But we're talking about cognitive restructuring. You have to understand that you can take every medicine in the world, but they don't treat. They don't cure things. That's not the point. An antidepressant mm. isn't named a happy pill. <laughs> you, can go, you can go do some meth if you want to feel ecstatic for a little bit, right? But there's not a pill that's approved. There's nothing in this world that if, my, if I got a call that my son died, I take the pill and I'm good to go. That's yeah. not how it works. It's literally demonstrative in its name. It's an antidepressant, not happiness. It just fights the symptoms of depression. But if you haven't changed anything in your life, if you haven't got any skills, guess what? You're outnumbered again because the medicine was designed to fight 50 of you. Now you got a hundred of you. So then you say, well, I need more medicine. Okay. They give you 10 more milligrams. So now you're fighting a hundred of you. You're taking it every day. You're doing like you're supposed to, but now it's 150 of you. So then you say this medicine ain't working. So they say, let's give you a different one. So now you fight 150 of you, no skills. Now you mm. fight 175. So this is called chasing the dragon. And what most people think is I take my medication. Why isn't life better? Because the medication is only getting you this side. I don't get to take a pill and say, today's going to be great. I got to use every skill. When somebody cuts me off, when I'm mad, when my wife pissed me off, when my kids didn't do what they're supposed to do, when I got into it with my boss, I have to use all those skills. Yep. The medicine just got you there at baseline so that you can use those skills. Hmm. Wow. That's so good. That's so good. And David, you know, the analogy that you gave of like the couch, you know, like the mountain and how... At some point, people that are depressed just feel defeated. And they're like, you know what? I'm just going to move into this little room and I'm going to stay stuck here. 
that analogy is so powerful. And if you have friends or family who are going through depression, like I hope that this kind of gives you a little bit of an insider view as to what that can look and feel like. Okay, so our final question for you, David. What does life look like for someone who seeks treatment versus someone who does not? And you've talked a little bit about this, but can you just give us some tangibles? So I would say that it's not, you know, the kind of cliche thought is if you're in treatment, life is better. No, life mm. is life. If if you're someone who's in treatment, life is manageable. Mm. Just like it is for the rest of us. When you're not in treatment, life's unmanageable. So when you need treatment, it's like anything, right? Some things are going to be different. I call myself a seasonal seasonal therapist, right? Because for most most of my patients, my clients, you're with me for a season or two. I'm not going to be with you forever. There's a lot of psychotropic medication that people don't understand. You're only supposed to be on for six months. You're not supposed to be on it forever, right? But because they're not getting any skills, they're not getting any better. It's like taking weight loss supplements, but you're still eating burgers and ice cream and stuff all the day. You're going to defeat the pill. Treatment is literally you sitting down with someone you trust that can stay disengaged enough to Mm. show you the path. Wow. I'm going to look at where you want to go and I'm going to ask you questions to get you there. I'm going to help. But what happens is most people look at therapy from the inverse relationship. They get to a therapist and they say, well, well, I want you to tell me what to do. And I say, well, what's your goal? What do you want? I don't care if you're using Siri or Alexa or whatever. Ask them a question and not know where you want to go. Hey, Siri. Take me to happiness. <laughs> if you ain't getting an answer, <laughs> Alexa, show me the man of my dreams. Not happening. Not, that's not what it is. So if you go, and this is this is a human component. You know, we like to um, either anthropomorphize things or mythologize things in order to get our answers, right? So what mm-hmm. happens is it's like when we treat God like a genie, right? Like, oh, if I prayed, why didn't you, you know, I once told a patient, he was like, I prayed and prayed for this. He was talking about staying with his wife. He's like, I prayed and prayed. He had put her through all this stuff. And I said, well, what if she was praying to leave the relationship? Oh, wow. <laughs> like, don't use God as a genie. Like, who, whose prayers get answered in? Like, like so... <laughs> When you're, when you're in treatment, and especially, I will say this, find someone that you like, that's good. Find someone you trust is better with treatment. Mm. I don't have to yeah. like, I don't have to like my surgeon. Mm-hmm. I trust him to do his damn job, right? Like mm-hmm. a lot of times when we're talking about therapy, people are looking for friend and advice. So they pick therapists like they try to pick friends. And you guys, this is me being indulgent. This is me being as nice as I can be. <laughs> like This is me. Me and my patients, it's interesting because they actually respond to my authenticity better than they ever would me mm-hmm. trying to play the clinical game. I can look at you, Justine, and say, you know what? Today, I'm going to challenge a lot of your cognitive distortions. I'm going to show you how you manipulated your schema. 
That's not me in treatment. I'm going to say you BSing right now, girl. And I'm going to show you where, mm-hmm. right? That's what I'm going to do because that's really me. And yeah. therapy treatment has to have two parts. You have to have the science and the art. The science is none of you are stupid. I can give you all my textbooks, all the theorists I read. You can figure it out. The art is me. That's what God yeah. gave me. Yeah. So when yeah. I put it together, that's when I'm a therapist. When I have my science and my art together, that's when I know I can touch you. There are times where I know it didn't come from me because I don't talk like that. I'm like, ah, I'm just, if that's what they need to hear, they need to hear. It's it's interesting because when I was young, I told you guys I was Pentecostal. I remember um, I was probably about 10 years old and they had a prophet at our church and he came up to uh, my mom. She used to tell me this all the time. He came up to my mom and he said, one day your son is going to be a a great man of God. He's going to speak in front of people and literal fire will come out of his mouth. Right. My mom hedged her hat on that. I ran away from everything I could, including like I'm a Marine. I'm the furthest thing from that. Three years ago, I told my wife what happened. I had to call him. I'm doing a group in my program. And one of my patients is like, um, I get done with the group. He's like, Dave, I need to see you in your office. I'm like, what's going on? I'm 39, so I was 36 then. I'm like, yeah, man, what's going on? We said, he's like, David, don't put me on the other side because the other side is for the acutely. He's like, when I say this, don't, don't put me on the other side because they know I'm going to get your ass up out of here. Like, hey. <laughs> he's like, before, before you even say, he was like, man, I'm just going to tell you. You were sitting there teaching. It was touching me, but I'm going to tell you right now, man. I seen fire coming out your mouth. I was like, what? So no matter what you do, you're going to do what you're supposed to do. You can't run away from. Right. So what I would say is find someone whose art and science are working for them. That's how you know they're a good clinician. That's how you know treatment's going to work. Not everybody's going to be like me. I'm atypical as a therapist because I'm loud and I'm abrasive and I and I make off color jokes. I do all that stuff. But it's me. It's authentically me. And there are people that respond to that. But there's somebody out there doing an incredible job. There's somebody out there who has melded their art and their science together. And that's who you meet for treatment. That's where you go there. And what I would say for the person who doesn't receive treatment, they stop living. Mm. They just suffer. Mm. Right? And suffering is a choice. Mm. Pain isn't. Pain isn't. Suffering is a choice. So when people choose to suffer, they choose to take on all of that. It's 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 like our it's like my ancestors. When I was about 17, 18 years old, I did not have the proper respect for that because I said it ain't no way I would have been a damn slave. I didn't understand the strength of character it took, how strong it took for you to, to take the pain and hope that things could be better later. The easiest way out, you think about it. Our people are around sharp farm instruments for hundreds of years. Hmm. Like, move aside the whitewashing of, of history. There were plenty of slave revolts they don't want to talk about. We wasn't passive. But there were people around every day looking at sharp instruments and saying the strength of character it took to do that. But here's why I love my people even more. They chose not to suffer. They found God. They got married. They celebrated. They did. They chose. They knew pain was every day. Every day it was pain. But they said, I'm not going to suffer. 
I'm not going to suffer. I'm going to find a core that's stronger than that. Those are the strongest people that I know. So sometimes when we're in our pain, we're just like, well, you know, I just, I got, I got to suffer. The term that we use clinically is called radical acceptance. Radical acceptance is where you just don't choose to suffer anymore. You know, the pain is there. Mm. You know, it's there. You know, it's going to come with it. But you accept. This is my lot in life for right now. Things can get better. If not on this side, the other side. If I just put a little bit forward, maybe it makes the path easier for the person behind me. So a lot of times when people are in treatment and getting better, they stop suffering. They stop suffering. They're not looking at it from the, the point of view of, I'm trapped in this relationship I don't want to be in. Now they're asking themselves, who am I in this relationship? I've been externalizing it, right? I tell them, I trip my patients up all the time, right? Oh, I can't believe I'm with this person. They're this, this, and this, and this. And I say, well, what type of person are you to be with them? Don't tell me how bad this person is and you're still with them. What did I say about you? Let's find out that. Let's find out where that is, how you view it. And then there's another component. That's a whole nother thing we would do. But most people, I'll shorthand it for you guys. Most people, because they do not know how to manage themselves, Treatment helps them. Most people are running around and they think that they go from zero to 10 with their emotional spectrum. They say, I just explode or I get anxious. But it's a it's a physiological impossibility. Our brains don't work that way. Unless you got a nail in your head or intermittent explosive disorder, you're not going from zero to 10. Here's what's going on. Let's use anger because I'm an angry guy. So I can use anger <laughs> as a, a construct, right? I'm running around at an eight for so long that it feels like a three. So when something mm -hmm. happens, it looks like I exploded. But if I really stopped and looked at my eight, I'm not running around not pissed. I'm just giving myself credit because I didn't smack the crap out of somebody today. Because I didn't holler at the kids. Because I didn't choke. So I'm giving myself credit to be like, you know what? Today was one of them days where I didn't end up in jail. That's not a three. <laughs> That's an eight. So when you explode at an eight, it doesn't take too much. So now you're trying to figure out, well, I don't know why I just keep losing it. I do. Because you can't remember what a three looks like. There was a period of time in my relationship where I was so stressed and messed up that my kids didn't even know what daddy looked like at a three or a four. Because I didn't. Wow. So that's the difference between someone who's in treatment and someone who's, who's not. You get to learn about yourself. See, all treatment is, is an advanced class on you. That's it. Man, wow. man, 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 man. <laughs> <Ooh>. <laughs> I told y'all. Man, I had an idea, but not really. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But yeah. <laughs> all right. So as we wrap up, um, we're going to try to answer a couple of questions. First one is, what do we want the audience to do next? And then the other one is, what do we want the listener to remember? So, David, let's start with you. I would say that if you're listening to this and let's say, you know, for those of you that this is, you know, reflective to you're going to feel any good therapist or any any orator is going to be able to touch on emotion therapy works like this if anytime i'm talking about therapy you don't feel a little conviction then i'm not talking about therapy right 
because I can use myself as I do and know what I'm talking about. So everyone should feel a little bit. So I want the listener that it is reflective to, to entertain, not make the decision right now, entertain the thought that there might be things you don't understand. Because if you can start there, opening up to treatment is a lot better. A lot of times what people say is go out and get treatment. I get it. I understand. But it's a long walk to that door, especially if you're at the bottom of the mountain. So if you're at the bottom of the mountain, I'm saying just run to the top. Slow down. Entertain the idea that you could start at someplace different than the bottom. I want anyone that's heard me to recognize that I am a fallible person, that I'm not perfect, that I am passionate and and impulsive, but I'm also loving and protective. And these are the parts of who I am. So when we talk about balance, therapy is not about me eliminating the other parts of me because there are times where I'm going to need those parts. That, That anger and that ability to stand up, I need that when I need to take up for myself or my family. I need those things. Most people look at it and say, you know, Andreas, you know, you may deal with the sensitivity that you struggle right. with, right? So you may say, I just wish I didn't have this sensitivity. If you had a sensitivity, you wouldn't have your family. You wouldn't connect to it. It's going to be a burden when you don't know how to carry it right. So I would tell people that part of listening to today is step one. Step one on whatever journey you want it to be. But even if it's not a journey for you, pass the information on to someone else. This is how you break down stigma. This is how you do it. You don't have to give credits to me or or anyone, right? I don't know what teacher taught me two plus two equals four, but I remember two plus two equals four. Sometimes the concepts are enough. Sometimes the concepts are enough. So that's what I would look at. That's what I would tell anyone listening. Abdul, how about you? Um, right, man, I don't even want to follow that. <laughs> so I think what I'm going to say as a rehash of what he's been saying the whole time, <laughs> you know, and I'd say just, um, I would say both of them together about what I want the audience to do next and, and to remember is that, um, uh, life is not meant to be lived alone and there is help and there is hope and there is health and there is life. And so, um, and like David said, you know, mental health is as important as your physical health. Just like you would go see a surgeon to work on and heal your body, you should go see a good therapist to help heal, heal your mind and your psyche. And so, um, and then with that, I love the idea of the practicing radical acceptance. Like that's, that's a phenomenal idea. So I think that's what I would want people to kind of come away with and do next. How about you, Justine? Um, Wow. Abdul and David have both shared fantastic recommendations for our listeners moving forward. I think for me, I would suggest let's normalize these conversations. You know, I think that is the first step in kind of taking away the stigma and also allowing people to know that they're not there alone. Right. And, you know, Andres, just thank you so much again for for being open, for sharing your own personal experiences. David, thank you for breaking it down so well. So yeah, my recommendation, let's normalize these things, especially if you are a parent who's raising kids. 
ask them about their mental health. You know, there's so much happening right now. Um, 2020 was hard for a lot of people, for a lot of children. Yeah. Let's have these conversations. Yeah. Um, for me, I'll make it quick too. Um, cause David said it all, um, is first of all, make sure, well, maybe not make sure, but at least examine if you're at the bottom that whole, uh, when he was talking about, um, um, you could be at an eight, but you think you're at, at a three, uh, something like that. You know, you could think that life is great, but you might be at the bottom, you know? And for me, I thought, I thought that life was great for a long time, but actually I was at the bottom. I've, I normalized bottom. And then it got to a point where it was just like way too much. Um, and, and just examine yourself, just, just, Man, take take some kind of inventory uh, uh, of of you, and make sure that you're really, really, really doing okay. That question, that question for me hit home. Like, when was the last time when you just got up and you just felt great? That's a great question. That's a really good mm-hmm. question. So I, that may be just a simple way, at least for you to to start that process. So uh, and and if you need the help, get the help. Uh, this episode for me, at least, um, let me know that I need to explore again, looking at talking to someone, uh, cause I have not done that. Uh, I'm back to relying on my, on my brain and relying on me and with my, my experience, you know, I can dip back into depression faster now. Um, so I need, I need to make sure that I got those skills as to, to handle what life throws at you. Cause life is life. Life is going to throw stuff at you. You just have to learn how to uh, cope with what life throws at you. Man. So just, this has been a fantastic conversation with psychotherapist and trauma therapist, David Strother. David is the owner and the founder of Valiant Therapeutic Services. Uh, David, I, w- I want to just say thank you for your time, for your expertise. So sometimes these are conversations that like David and I have with each other. And man, I just wanted y'all to hear just, just a glimpse of the power and expertise that David brings. And so, um, but I also want to say as, you know, to you as a United States Marine, I also want to say thank you for your service. Um, so, David, if people want to define you or find Valiant, how can folks reach you? So, um, I'm I'm on I'm not I'm not like Dula. He's tech savvy through you know everything. So, but I got a social media presence um, on Facebook. Uh, Valiant Therapeutic Services. I put little snippets up. I do classes sometimes. I do Facebook lives. Um, Valiant V A L. I-A-N-T, Therapeutic Services. also have a site that will be going live pretty soon. It's thevaliantmind.org. And I, you can always meet, reach me by email um, at thevaliantmind at gmail.com. And I pretty much, you know, if I don't answer it, someone in the organization does pretty quickly. But I'm not that hard to find. You, you know, you can get to me through the pod. You know, Abdul is my brother. So, you know, if you need need any questions asked, I'm never one of those people that won't help someone who needs help. And if I can't help you, then I'll at least try to help you. This is really good. Right I, I want to acknowledge one more fun, thing. <laughs> Great. That T-shirt. 
a day with Scott. What you got? It says proud, proud nerd. Right. <laughs> N-E-R-D, baby. <laughs> so Represent. It's, funny, it's funny you mentioned that, Andres, because as we close out, I would be remiss if we didn't say that we might have to have David back on here oh, as we talk about all absolutely Marvel and Marvel Cinematic Universe. No. Hey, the okay. expert. So, so, you know I'm there for. So, I'm not going to so, be here so, for that. Sorry. Uh, yes. <laughs> I'm also a subject matter expert on that, guys. There we go. So, <laughs> listeners, I've mentioned before that, like, I'm not a big comic book person, but that my best friend from high school my, and my brother is who put me up on game about all the, all, all the, all the comic stuff. So David is one of the folks who I'm talking about. Like he, he gave me all the game and I won't even, I won't even tell y'all how he clowned me when I called him <laughs> with what I thought was an epiphany. <laughs> He's laughing. He knows where I'm going. You're talking about the word. Hey, what's this? What's yeah. this? <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, yeah, Stan was ahead of the time. All right. Yeah. So, I was watching X-Men and this is about what, four years ago, maybe three, four years ago. Yeah. Yeah. It's probably, might, might be closer to five. God, it might be. So yeah. I hit, I hit David up and I was like, wait a minute. I just thought of something crazy. Professor X and Magneto are like these Malcolm and Martin archetypes. And I thought it was something I just discovered. <laughs> and this boy clowned me. <laughs> now you got you got to keep in mind. I done met Stan Lee. I go to Comic Con. I got all this stuff. So it's pretty much like him saying, "Hey, you know what? I think Superman is a hero <laughs> that has all like it's just so basic." But in his mind, I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, yeah. He literally designed Black Panther. All those like he was he was a young Jewish guy doing his best to try to, you know, thumb the system down. So, yeah, no, I was like, spot on. But I had to roast him for about 30 minutes before. Uh, he, he was <laughs> like, look, he was like, look, I'm, I'm, I'm taking your nerd card right now. Like, yeah. you, you, you have lost all credibility of calling yourself a nerd if you didn't know that. Just, he, he went in on me for a while. Uh, but, yeah, Dave, thank you so much for this conversation. And listeners, we will have this definitely up for you. And please share this with with uh, with everyone, this, this is a great. This was a great conversation. Well, that does it for us for now. As always, if you like the show and the content, if you're encouraged or challenged by it, please like, subscribe, share, or drop us a review. And don't be afraid to do all three. That'll help folks find us and hopefully join the community because we can always use more soldiers. And thanks again for all the love, y'all. And if you have any questions for David or anything we cover on the show, if you have topics you want us to discuss or just want to reach out, become a member of our community on Facebook at facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash Christian soldier, or you can email us at hello at Christian soldier.com. So thanks again for listening. I'm Abdullah. I'm Andres. And I'm Justine. And until next time, y'all keep the faith. Peace. Paz. Amani. The Christian Soldier Podcast is brought to you by the Christian Soldier Collective, a Jesus-centered community dedicated to the pursuit of unity, cultural and ethnic conciliation, and social justice within the church. The theme song is The Ace by Ballpoint. The Christian Soldier Podcast is a production of the Christian Soldier Collective and Monarch Training and Development.
is the startup. This <laughs> gorilla podcast. Uh, this is the stuff that never makes me. I sell the catalog. None of these make it. It's all clean. <laughs> yeah. Oh yeah. man. I will. I will take the hit for that. I was going to say, so like when you said six in the text, I was like, no way. There is no way that we agreed to six o'clock. But and, and I, was thinking, I was thinking, I was like, wait, everyone said six. What are y'all talking about? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> David, I think you need to talk to your brother in law. Just a private session. Yeah. The man is hearing voices in his head. Yeah. <laughs> I'm, having, I'm having auditory hallucinations. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the man's turning 50 next year. So, yeah. You know. Today on the podcast, we're talking about Black mental health as part of our Black Love series. Our guest today will be behavioral health therapist and licensed clinical social worker, David Schroeder. David Schroeder. <laughs> Why can't I say that? You keep saying Schroeder. Like Ricky <laughs> Schroeder. Am I saying that right? Is it coming out okay or no? No, it's still saying, it's something like you're saying Schroeder. Okay, help me out. Schroeder. There, Stroder. Yeah. Yeah. Stroder. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yeah. Last time. David Stroder. Well played, right? <laughs> so let's get back into our show. Uh, we've been discussing black mental health with trauma specialist David. St- <laughs> Why am I stuck on this name? And Grace, for this part, you are. <laughs> You honestly could just say David. Like people already know. <laughs> She's like, please just quit butchering his name. Already just, know his name. Say David. What their brother's name ever do to you? <laughs> All right, I, I'll 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 do something else. All right. It's only two vowels in it, so it's not All even right. like I'm, I mean. I'm, I'm hey, that's the thing. That's the thing. I'm just. <laughs> My, my, my tongue just doesn't work. Like, my tongue's like, nah, we're not going to do it. My tongue don't work that way. I'm telling you. All right. All right. Let me see if I can get back in here. All right. Here we go. Three, two, one. <laughs> <laughs>